everyone was absolutely convinced that this was like a real thing and I knew it kind of wasn't. It's now a construct that lives in people's brains. Once you've tied a knot in reality, it's, it's there. It's real. It exists. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Co-Free Coffee Cast. I'm your host, Sandy McGuire, and today I'm joined by the imitable Shay Arison. Shay is personally responsible for having built a huge chunk of the Haskell community. He started the IRC channel, the Monad Reader blog, as well as several Haskell conferences. Furthermore, he's one of the early authors of both Lambbot and Xmonad. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shay. To just dive into a little bit of personal stuff, Shay Arison isn't the name you were given at birth. And as someone who also doesn't use their birth name, this is a, quite an interesting topic to me. I'm wondering, what's the power of a name and why did you change yours? I think originally the power of names was that you you kind of, you got a last name in the Middle Ages, like whether you were Baker or you were Cooper or something like that. And so it described what you did. I do think that names have a lot of meaning and my impetus behind changing my name was that I sort of wanted to be a different person than the person that I grew up as. And so I changed, my mother's still pretty unhappy about it, by the way. But uh, yeah, I changed my name and I'm, I've been happy about it for all of 20 years. Why did you choose the name you did? Uh, that is a long, complicated story that would probably require a late evening at a pub. But uh, I can at least give you a, a preview. And that is that my last name is effectively son of chaos. And some, some t- us people have said that that is descriptive. Some people have said that that is prescriptive. I'm not sure. I like that a lot. Thanks. You're a powerhouse of community building in Haskell. Offline, you told me that the secret is to identify what needs to be done and just to go do it. I'm wondering, like, what sort of stuff do you end up doing? and How do you identify things that need to be done? Um, a lot of times people will, you can just see them. Look at any sort of link aggregator. Look at any, any place where someone has put comments on a post. Maybe it's Reddit. Maybe it's the Orange site. Maybe it's the Bird site. You're going to see people complaining about things, about parts of the things that you really like, whatever those may be. And for me, I, you know, I really like Haskell. I think it's great and awesome and cool. And so early on, I saw people complaining. One of the things that one of the early complaints was, gosh, it would be really great if we didn't have to use GHC directly to build the packages that we want to install. And uh, so I was like peripherally involved in uh, the creation of the package manager. That was, uh, Isaac Jones was the person who really pushed it through, but I was kind of, uh, you know, I was like part of the discussions. It was, uh, what was that 2006? Uh, I think that was in Oregon at ICFP, yeah. And uh, Isaac was like, you know, we really need one. And I was like, well, go do it. You can, it can be awesome. I believe in you. But then there's stuff like, Recently, one of my friends, I guess it was two years ago now, they wanted to do Advent of Code in Haskell because I told them how great it was. And I think it was partway in the second or third problem, they used Foldel out of the prelude and it blew up. And they didn't know about Foldel Prime and strictness. Um, and so I feel like one of the things that needs to be done there is to have easy to use defaults. We have, now we have things like GHC up. That was super great, super awesome. Completely stole the idea from Rust up and it's, and it's wonderful. Previously, it was a pain to automatically install the pieces. There's all sorts of things that need to be done. You can look in the issue tracker. Uh, you could look at what are the packages that every other package depends on. Find the most important bug in those. And uh, there's there's a, a, a zillion ways. There's so many ways to find things that need to be done. And it's really uh, try something. See if it works. If it doesn't work, do something else. 
How are groups of people made? What brings them into existence? How do you personally go about building groups? Well, for the first two, it's very simple. It's belief. And that is that if three or four people believe that a group exists, then it does. Um, I think that the first group I ever, I guess the first group I ever organized was the Birmingham, Alabama, a board gamers group. A friend of mine said, I wish there was a board gamers group. And I was like, well, I can help. And um, uh, I guess, and, and, and it turned out that the only hard, I guess the only important thing, the central required thing for that was to show up at the same time every week at the same place and always be there. Like it didn't matter if it was snowing or hailing or whatever was going on. If you were there and people could like, rely on the fact that the group was always there, then at some point everyone believed it. And I think I only organized that for, I guess, a year. And when I had to move away, uh, like 30 or 40 people were like, well, this is such an important group. Someone else took it over. It, it, I don't know if it still continues, but I know it went on for 10 years or so. Wow. Do you think a year is the like the right amount of time to, to foster an environment like that? Or can it be shorter? Does it have to be longer? I don't know. One of the problems I have not solved and that I would like to understand better is how do how do you organize a group in such a way that it continues afterwards? Um, I, I think that part of the solution is to have two or three organizers. But but in fact, group organizers are rare and, and hard to find. And everyone wants to know one. Everyone wants one in their community. So sometimes you can find two or three, uh, but it's hard. It's really difficult. It's uh, sort of like finding a, a game master for your, for your role-playing game or finding... It's, it's the person who organizes everybody, the person who gets them together. Um, those people are just rare. It's hard to find. It's often... I've had a lot of groups that I created, and as soon as I left, they died. They just fell apart. Uh, I've had a few that, that kept on going. Sometimes it's when you get enough people together that, like I said, enough people believe in it. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Is part of the solution there to just be the person who, who organizes? That's an interesting question. Yes, but there's, there's, there's a more than just organizing. So I think I naturally have an extremely pushy personality. Like I'm the person who bulldozes people. And, and I think the easiest way to see this is see me at some sort of conference, whether it's it's probably going to be a programming conference, but it could be a few other things. And, uh, you know, there's always that space between talks. Often it's like an hour and a half. And there's what, like 16 places within two blocks where people can get lunch and no one has a plan. And so if I'm the person in the group, then uh, like 10 minutes later, 75% of them are heading in a single direction because I will just drag people along. I will say, hey, me and a bunch of other people are going in this direction. And oftentimes... No one else had agreed with me until I said that, and then ever, and then it was true. So that's that's how you kind of organize people. Again, it's sort of maybe the the belief that there's critical mass there, and because of that, people sign on. Is that do you think part of it? I think so. I think I think that a lot of times people, I'm not sure. Is it that they don't have a plan? I'm not actually sure. But uh, if you can, I, I think sometimes it's that. Maybe people don't know that their plan is the best plan and this is something that's important to them. I think a lot of times it's more important to have any plan, to get everyone headed in the same direction, than it is to have the best plan. I've, I've been in plenty of uh, work discussions where someone would say, this is not perfect, it has all these problems, and but you you sort of have to do something. You can't just sit there in analysis paralysis. So, And this is often, this is my approach in life as well, and that is to pick a direction, get going. 
uh, I guess, you know, 20 years ago, my uncle said to me, action has power. And I thought about that for a bunch of years. And I, I think I've discovered that I think what he was saying was that it's easier to steer once you're moving than it is to go from not moving to moving. And so once you have a direction, once you're going somewhere, then you can change directions. And oftentimes getting somewhere will inform your future directions better. And then you have more information to steer with. I really like that. Um, I think it's Richard Hamming who talks about the the drunk sailor and how sort of having any any direction at all, or I guess having momentum is maybe more important than having direction because getting moving is the hard part. And then once you're, you're, you're never going to like start off in the completely wrong direction, right? You might be not heading in the perfect direction, but you're probably aiming roughly in the right way. Well, there's, so I think that for the thing you just said, one of the assumptions is that there is a right direction and I'm not convinced that's true. I think that it's sort of like, I don't, I don't, I also don't subscribe to the belief that there's one single person in the world who is perfect for you and that you can only be in a relationship with them. I think that there are lots of directions that are good. I think there's lots of people that would be good. Uh, and I, I think that in general, people have this extremely restrictive view on what things are good. It's, it's often hard to choose. You know, like, how do you know 10 years later, this thing that I thought was terrible was actually good for me and something I thought was good wasn't. And I, I feel like uh, I read a blog post recently and said, make a, make a lot of things. And I, that seems to be true to me. It's, yeah, pick a direction, go as fast as you can, uh, steer as soon as you kn know that things need to be different, change them. Speaking of which, you're um, the original organizer of EuroHaskell. And I'm wondering, um, how do you start a conference? And what's the story behind EuroHaskell? So that conference, EuroHaskell 2003 in Gothenburg, Sweden, that started out as a joke. That was, <laughs> that was uh, so the whole plan was... Um, there was like a week-long EuroPython 2003 at Gothenburg, Sweden, and uh, a couple of people I knew in Gothenburg. I was living in Sweden at the time, in the distant north, and a couple of people I knew, Björn Bringert and Anders Carlsen, were taking Haskell classes, and they really liked the language. And so uh, I don't remember if Björn was, was busy or not, but I know that Anders Carlsen, who later did a bunch of stuff on Dbus, you know, worked at Apple, did, did a bunch of cool stuff, um, he said, hey, why don't you come to my apartment? And we'll sit on the floor, have some adult beverages. It'll be great fun. And so, and he had a really small apartment. So it was just going to be me and him. And I think, I don't even think he had a second chair. We're just going to sit on his floor. It was great. <laughs> and then uh, I think Piran then was able to attend. And so it was like, oh, well, maybe we'll have to sit outside. And then two or three other people were like, hey, I'm going to be in the area. Why don't we, it'll be fun. And so that was cool. And I'd also, I'd started the Haskell IRC channel, gosh, I guess a year earlier. And uh, some new person joined the channel uh, a few weeks before this and said, hey, who's the person responsible for this uh, this Eurohaskell? And I was like, it's me. You know, send me an email if you want to figure out where to show up. So they submitted a paper. <laughs> and so, uh, so then I had a choice. Like, do I tell them, like, uh, this was totally a joke, or do I find a venue? And fortunately for me, John Hughes was teaching at the computer science department of uh, Gothenburg. And I mean, I'd never talked to the guy before, but I sent him an email. and was like, uh, hey, could you get us a room? And so he was like, yeah, yeah, I can. And I was like, do you want to give a talk? And he was like, sure, that'll be fun. <laughs> and it, uh, it wasn't actually until the, the day of that I was like, hey, want to try a unicycle in front of all your students? And uh, got pictures of that somewhere. That was fun. Uh, so yeah, John Hughes gave a talk on arrows. Uh, that was actually the first talk on 
uh, has the Haskell runtime on the bare metal. So that was like the hop, the Haskell operating system. Um, gosh, I don't remember the third paper, the third presentation. I totally should though. So it sounds like you you were just going and said, why don't we make a conference out of this? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Where do you get that idea from? So when I first started the Haskell IRC channel, some people said, Shay, you don't have a PhD in functional programming. There's no way that you're qualified to run this channel. And my first thought was, well, there was a point when nobody had PhDs, right? And some people were still qualified or not qualified mm -hmm. to do things. And so the fact that I do or don't have a PhD probably doesn't actually relate. Right. Um, and, and I guess that's it. It's like at some point there were no academic journals. At some point there weren't any of these things. And people still got stuff done. So, I, I mean, I'm just as qualified as anyone else if I can do the thing. I love that. And um, I want to come back to that in a little bit because um, it dovetails quite nicely into some of my other discussion questions. But in the meantime, I, I would like to know if you've just put together any other conferences and if there are any highlights that you think um, you'd like to share. Sure. So a couple of years later, the the GHC team that is the Simons at Microsoft Research were advertising for a, a gopher that is just sort of an assistant for the GHC compiler. And, um, and I was like, why the heck not? I'll send in my resume. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but it'll be fun. And I, so I submitted my resume and I uh, got a response back, which was Microsoft Research will pay for you to fly to, uh, to Cambridge, uh, England and do an interview. And you can choose, it was like a one month or two month window. It was a pretty big, pretty big chunk of time. And I was like, hey, this worked really well the last time. I'll just, I'll see what, if I can figure out who the other two interviewees are, which took me 15 minutes, by the way. And, <laughs> uh, I, was, I and I convinced, the, I, I convinced them, uh, by the way, it was Ian Lina and David Hemmelstrup. Those were the two other interviewees. And, uh, and I just basically just got on the Haskell IRC channel. I was like, hey, who's got the other two interviews? And. They were like, yeah, what, what do you want? And I was like, let's do a conference. It'll be fun. We'll schedule our reviews on the same day. And they were like, seriously? And I was like, yeah, it'll be great. And once again, I emailed Simon Peyton Jones and was like, hey, uh, can we get a room? And he was like, yeah, okay. And uh, and this time, like eight people submitted papers, which oh was God. super cool. And uh, we had this, what was it called? Like the Jasmine Room or something like that at Microsoft Research. Anyway, so then, uh, and so everybody kind of... <laughs> People were like, how much does this conference cost? And I was like, man, just show up. It'll be great. And uh, people came from Italy and people came from, from Ireland and people came from other, a couple of other places on, on like in Europe. I don't, I mean, it was a great adventure. We went punting. Uh, Duncan Coots is a super awesome person who let me sleep on his floor. And uh, the day of the conference, we got there. It was like 8 a.m. I was kind of tired because I'm not good at sleeping. And, uh, Someone came up to me and was like, Shay, who goes first? And I was like, and I stood up and I was like, hey, who's ready? And a couple of people were like, yeah, uh, I, I know I planned to go first, but do I have to? I was like, nah, if you're not ready, then keep working on it. So a bunch of awesome stuff was presented. Uh, some novel research. Oh, what was the, some of the early property based, like, I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. The, the, one of the cool things that happened with Anglo Haskell was that it kept going for five more years. And so there was a case where uh, a community, like a, an organization, some sort of like pattern continued. Um, and a lot of people were important with that. One of the other things I heard later was that Microsoft Research, the HR department was sort of terrified when this happened 
because they had never had any, any of their interview candidates talk to each other both before and after the interview process. So I don't know what happened with that. Um, but it was fun, you know? It was, it was just, it was a blast. Did you get anyone else on your unicycle? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Simon Peyton Jones was on the unicycle. Uh, <laughs> let's see, Liang Hu, uh, Philippa Cowderoy. Uh, Edwin Brady did not want to try the unicycle, but golly, we had a lot of fun at the pub afterwards. Um, uh, there was, uh, yeah, so also got to, you know, talk to Simon Marlowe and a bunch of other people. It was, it was a blast. It was great fun. I did not get the job, by the way. Just hearing these names is sort of the, the who's who of, of the big names in the field. Were they big back then? Or do you think it was, um, has that happened since then? And you just happened to, to be in the right place at the right time? Well, that's, that's an interesting thing to say or to ask, to think. I don't know that, I guess I don't know that there are ever big names. There are people who have done cool things, influential things. Um, take the author of our podcast here, Sandy McGuire, uh, yesterday and, and one of my, we have this like weekly work meeting and someone was like, oh man, you've got to read this book. And I was like, oh, that was the one, that's the one written by Sandy McGuire. They're like, oh yeah, and his other one's great too. And they don't, you know, as far as I know, they've never met the host, but they admire the awesome stuff that Sandy McGuire has done. And so like Edwin Brady did a bunch of cool stuff. Part of another part of this is that the community was very small. It's easy to get to know everybody. But at the same time, you always have the chance, no matter how old or how young you are, to do something amazing that is a departure from the norm that is makes a big difference. And you don't even know what those things are going to be. It's often just try a bunch of things that you think are going to be interesting or going to be exciting. Sometimes it's 10 years until you know what makes a difference. I didn't know that uh, doing Haskell things was going to like affect so many people, but it really has. I promise that wasn't a setup, that, that very kind compliment of yours. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell me about putting together the IRC channel? Where did that come from? I had gotten really far into Python. I'd gotten to the point where I'd hit the edges and I couldn't find anything new. The toy was done. The batteries were drained. There wasn't anything exciting. Once I'd started building meta classes to try to make it into self and do prototype based inheritance, it was, I'd gone too far. <laughs> and so, um, uh, but I, and I was actually, I was writing some ELISP around the time and, and there was some really cool stuff that I liked about Lisp. And so I was kind of looking towards scheme, but I had like this very particular idea of how ELISP should look that didn't really match the other stuff. And, um, one of my friends was like, hey, this looks like Haskell. Like, you should try that. And I was like, what's Haskell? And so he introduced me to Haskell. And I was like, wow, this is such a great language. And at the time, the only learning material I had was the, I don't know how well known this is nowadays, but the gentle introduction to Haskell, which there's a, a quote of me saying, it is the brick bat of doom, because I completely bounced off that. I've never heard of this before. Well, there were two books. And there was the gentle introduction. That was the only free information on Haskell. And I gave up on Haskell. I was like, forget it. This is not going to work. And so I decided to go learn Scheme instead because it looked like a language that I could actually get into without spending a lot of money. And it turned out that my girlfriend at the time had already bought me the only two Haskell books that existed. <laughs> and so when they showed up and she gave them to me for my birthday, because it took like forever for things to ship to the distant north of Sweden, uh, she was like, I know that you've uh, kind of changed interest already, but at least you could give these a try. And so I did. I decided to really like dive into Haskell. And because like, you know, if someone buys me a gift, then that means they've... It was... And so I still wasn't very good at learning Haskell. And I was like, you know what I can do? 
I can build a community of other people to teach me Haskell. This will be a great idea. And so I got on the Haskell mailing list and I was like, hey guys, there's like famous academics that you want to chat with on the Haskell IRC channel. And once they arrived, it was true. Again, they, they believed it was the case and then it was. Right, absolutely. I think of this often as like pulling a knot or tying a knot in reality. I don't know exactly how that works, but yeah, you're kind of creating something from nothing because belief is, uh, I think it's the most powerful thing humans have. Can you elaborate on that further? I feel like there is a, a surprisingly thick layer of a lot of what people believe is unchangeable reality is instead belief. People are far more flexible than they think. But but like the, the true limits of reality are, are, are very are much lower down on this like thick layer of reality. I, I would say a half or two thirds of what people believe is unchangeable reality is is instead early life training or just what they were what they con they are convinced it exists and so it does the same way a group is. I like your your metaphor about tying a knot in reality. Where, where did that idea come from? Oh, well, it came from the fact that I was so shocked after the Birmingham Board Gamers when everyone was absolutely convinced that this board gamer thing was, was like a real thing and I knew it kind of wasn't. And I was like, well, why do they all believe this? How did this happen? It's now a construct that lives in people's brains. And this is where I came up with the idea, like once you've tied a knot in reality, it's, it's there. It's real. It exists. Something else that you've uh, tied a knot in was creating the Monad Reader. And for me, that was this hugely intimidating journal when I was first coming onto the scene. It was it was like a little before my time, but um, in re researching this interview, I, I was just like learned and was shocked to, to hear that you're the person who got started. What was the original vision and how'd, how'd, you, how'd you start it? At the time, I was still doing a bunch of Java programming and I was hanging out on the Java IRC channels and the guy who ran the channel, who probably still does, he was his IRC name was Cheezer. We used to like joke about it, uh, but he was a really you know a nice, friendly guy. And uh, at some point he was like, Shay, you know, what's so cool about Haskell? Like, can you, like, give me some introduction? Uh, like, stuff that I don't have to buy a book for. And it turned out I couldn't. And I was kind of unhappy about that because he really didn't want to read a research paper. And I totally understand that. Was, I think, the first time I looked at bananas and lenses and barbed wire, I was like, what the heck do all the symbols mean, man? And then, and I was, of course, asking this on the Haskell RC channel, and someone was like, oh, yeah, well, that one works on set theory, not like the other papers, which were, are based off a different set of symbols. Oh, great. Like, where the heck am I supposed to learn that? So I wanted very explicitly to make a, uh, some sort of regular publication that was accessible to motivated commercial programmers that was not a research paper. I wanted something where they could dive into it and they could really learn something cool, something awesome, the content from a research paper without the honestly, oftentimes inaccessibility of a research paper. I can imagine that there are a lot of downsides of community organization. For example, it's a lot of work and that probably goes under-recognized. It certainly doesn't come up with any money. I imagine also like when it's going smoothly that probably most people don't even notice and it's it's all behind the scenes. So I'm wondering like, what's the draw? Why do you do it? Originally, I was just interested in myself for myself. That's why I got into Haskell. And then I got other people to teach me. And then I realized that I was actually making a difference. I was starting to make a real difference in the world. And I also realized that um, Haskell was a sufficient departure and, and sufficiently different that it could like stretch the brains of the world of, or, or the culture of programmers and could really improve things. And so the more I could do to, to popularize it, to make it accessible, and I mean, it's not me doing the popularization or the accessibility. It was more along the lines of me saying, what do you think this thing could be done? You know, dropping to an issue tracker and saying, this is causing problems. Can, can someone do something about it? I think that it started out as the fact that I could make a difference in the world. And I feel like I have. 
there's a there's a surprising number of people who know me all over the world and who I can like send them a message and be like, hey, I happen to be in Belgium. Let's hang out. I happen to be in Philadelphia. Let's hang out and just meet them and, and chat with them and just see what's going on with their life. And I think though, like community building, you have to have like a good community first. And then you have like, and, and that community has to have a, a clear goal. Like the goal of the Haskell channel was to teach Haskell and also be a good welcoming community. And there's lots of surprising stories on the internet, like trolls who would show up in the Haskell ARC channel and tr start trolling. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're learning Haskell. And uh, there's, this is relatively famous for a while. Yeah, good community. Can you tell me a little bit about that of trolls coming in and, and walking out knowing Haskell? <laughs> Someone actually recorded that this IRC log where this happened and it's uh, it's been linked like thousands of times and I don't know where it is at the moment. I could track it down and send you a link. It's just, it was, but it really did describe how welcoming and how good a community can be when you have done the important things, which is like remove the toxic people. Uh, when someone violates community standards, you need to clearly tell them the thing is the thing that they did that violated the community standards uh and i mean some people hey like i'm not a native speaker of swedish so sometimes i misunderstand things and lots of people are not native speakers of english and so this would lead to me sometimes giving multiple two or three times i would like try to tell them in different ways and explain it to them after a while if somebody just cannot follow the rules they get kicked and i am happy to kick people i've kicked myself a couple of times have you really kicked yourself oh yes because sometimes I realize that I am the person who is misbehaving and then it's time for me to get off the channel. I've totally kicked myself, yes. Oh, it's beautiful. Sometimes I feel a lot like like a, an eight-year-old trying to throw a birthday party. And I really want to do something cool and bring people together, but I have this fear that what if nobody comes? Have you ever tried any initiatives that failed? Most of them. Most of the things fail. Almost everything fails. Gosh, I did so many things that just completely fell over and died. Weekend channels on IRC. Nobody's heard of that. You know why? They suck. <laughs> Let's see. What else did I do? There's just so many things that I tried that just did not work at all. And then, like, gosh, sometimes it was one out of 100 that would actually have any traction. Sometimes I, w I got really lucky and it would be one out of 10. But that was not. That's not usually how it worked. Like the like Lambda bot, this IRC bot. This was originally written by Andrew Bromage. Uh, who went by pseudonym on IRC. He wrote the bot and he had one plugin and it, and it connected to IRC. That's all it did. And he hadn't written the plugin system. And he just like was like, here. And I was like, cool, send me the source. So he sent me the source. I wrote the plugin system, which was like the ugliest, hackiest thing you can imagine. I wrote the first plugin, which ate all of my RAM and killed my computer. And, <laughs> uh, but then it, it kept, it's still going. Like um, I hosted it for the first seven years on like a computer that was like, on, you know, my kind of like my backup home server by my knee. And uh, that one had a lot of fun social stuff because it was like, you could get the bot to join other channels if you're an admin and you could get, you could become an admin by writing a plugin. And so this was like, show me your Haskell skills, show me your Haskell skills in public, get cool prizes for showing your Haskell skills in public. And this was very much a good, positive, self-reinforcing pattern. I didn't know that you did LambdaBot or at least uh, helped popularize it and ran it at your knee. <laughs> Um, how do you not get discouraged when you put a lot of effort into something and it, it just doesn't pan out? Sometimes I do get discouraged, you know? I mean, I think that happens to everybody. But also I am restless and impatient and I'm easily bored. And so I have to try stuff all the time and uh, just have to try new things. I have to try different stuff. And sometimes it's terrible. And most of the time it's terrible. And... 
But I, I you know, I uh, one of the things that's been kind of wandering around in my head just just in the last week is that doing a thing the first time makes the second time much easier, and then the third time's easier than that. And so part of this is consciously, explicitly choosing the things you want to be easier in your life. Why did I ever start Netflix? I don't know. Like, it's not the kind of thing that I want to spend my time on. But then, like, uh, writing code that does something cool that, like, improves my understanding, this is always good. It gets easier the second time. So I guess it's, like, part of it is consciously, like you said with the Hamming book, picking this direction, which is not consumption. It's production. It is building things. It is creating things and keeping in that direction. I realize um, the Hamming book is maybe a, a little secret between us, and so maybe you could spend a a little while and just explain to our listeners what is this hamming book oh yeah this is one of my favorite books of all time and here's how it goes so richard hamming was the world's first systems administrator they built the first real computer to calculate the yield for the atomic bomb oak ridge tennessee middle of nowhere used to live nearby so they the guys who were going to use it dirac einstein von Braun, like this long list of people that you've, you know, Oppenheimer, like the big names, you've heard of all these. And uh, so he was the first sysadmin and he realized that he was just a stool pigeon. He was just a flunky, but he did say that he had clear scientific training where he could figure out the differences between things. And he says in this book, he said, there were twice as many people at this and on this project that you've never heard of. And so he, he first figured out for himself how to be a Fermi, Oppenheimer, Dirac, Einstein, someone that you have heard of, and then he figured out how to put it into a book to tell you the difference so that you can make these choices yourself in whatever you choose to do. That's what this book is about. What did you personally take away from this? Oh gosh, a thousand things are, are great. Picking a direction is, is like surprisingly important. Um, thinking big thoughts on the last half of Friday is really good. When I first read this book some, gosh, I guess 15 years ago, at the time, he said, like, artificial intelligence, self-programming computers is going to be big. And I was I was really doubtful because this was like another one of those AI winters where nobody cared about AI. Nobody cared. And so I wasn't sure that I believed him. But then, hey, guess what? It's pretty important now. So uh, he's got a couple of other predictions that I'm curious if they're going to work out. You know, it's a really great book. It's 20 bucks uh, to get it from... I forget who's reprinting it now. It was it was like three thousand dollars for a long time, and I, I I got really lucky and found an original one for like a hundred bucks. And uh, nowadays you can get it for twenty bucks. And I honestly, when someone does a great service to me, like help me on something like my taxes, that's super frustrating. I tend to send them a copy because it's only twenty bucks, and it might help them out. So it's a good book. The, the book itself is um, the Art of Doing Science and Engineering by Richard Hamming, and I think it's available on Strike Press. Yep, that's it. Yeah. So wait, I want to go back to this eight-year-old comment because, because like, well, I guess this might even be the next kind of thing you're, you're, I don't know if it's what you're, permission, right? It's like, how do you allow yourself to do something? And this, I think, also goes back to this, this, like, this thing about, like, belief, right? Being such a thick layer that, that hems us in. And it's good in a lot of ways because, um, gosh, we're, we're such incredibly social animals as humans. We are, we are so tightly connected. Um, like real selfishness is building up everybody else because that builds up the whole world. But, uh, but we're also constrained, right? Like I, I think to myself when I'm walking down the street that like the fact that we have glass windows that aren't broken is a sign that society is functioning because there's all these like strange, I want to say vulnerabilities, like fragilities to our society that, that just work. It works because everybody believes it works. And so 
you have permission. Um, the people who come to you and tell you what to do at work, they don't know what the heck they're doing. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Nobody knows what the heck they're doing. We're all trying to get along. And you can choose your own path. I've done this plenty of times. Uh, my last job, I tried to buy the company on the floor above us. Uh, I was just an individual contributor, just like a guy who sat there and wrote, wrote Python. But I can see a good deal when I know one, right? And so our networking stuff sucked, I know, because I wrote some of it. And the guy, the the people on the floor above us were doing a much better job and they had a much better understanding of really high speed packet capture. So I went to the CEO and was like, hey, let's buy the company above us. They're about to fall over and die. They're, they're on a fire sale for like $20 million and we really could benefit from their software and at least if nothing else, their networking team. And the CEO was like, what? And I like, you know, he was super busy about to fly off to Europe. And so I gave him my 10 minute pitch and he was like, that sounds like a good idea. And so he passed me off to the vice president who talked, who like talked to me about it for an hour and a half. And they did not end up buying the company. I wish they had, but they did hire like a couple of departments from the company. So I feel like I had a positive, I made a positive change there. And that was just because I saw that there was something that needed to be done. And I didn't have permission to tell the CEO to try to buy another company, but like, why not? Yeah, why not? I, I was wondering if this came up when you were sort of wrangling people for the Monad Reader. Because um, I imagine that would also have quite a bar on sort of the self-permission to, to, to contribute to such a thing because it is like an esteemed thing. Did you have to do any sort of corralling of people to convince them that they were capable of, of writing and contributing? Oh, yeah, lots. It was, and, and it was, um, I think one of the things that helped is that, I, like, I don't know everybody in the Haskell community now, but boy, at the time I sure did. And so, I, and I was just like, I was interested, like what cool things are people working on? Tell me about this neat code you've just written. And so a lot of times I knew exactly what I wanted them to write an article about. I'd be like, oh, you've just written an effects library. Uh, why don't you write about a little article about that? Show us how it works. Uh, show us the kind of things. Um, I roped in all sorts of people. Um, you've probably heard of at least one of the articles. You've probably heard of the type classopedia, for example. Um, I have, yeah. That was uh, roping in Brent Yorkie. Yer um, and yeah, so there were lots of people who did not feel qualified. There were lots of people who didn't have a, a degree, had never taken a college course, were doing awesome stuff. And all I had to do was convince them that people would want to read about it. And so there, there is, I feel like this is a, this is a big problem or a, what am I saying? An obstacle where people aren't convinced that what they're doing is good enough. And you know what? Maybe it's not, but if someone else can gain value from it, then it is right. Like I, I write all kinds of just Haskell code that just does random stuff. Right now I'm just doing Postgres, loading stuff into and out of databases. And I plan on putting little projects up on GitHub where people can walk through the steps of just how to do it super basic and have a single project that they can download and work with. It's just a small thing, but I think it will help. To me, it feels like one of the downsides of the Haskell community is sort of the associated prestige where for like whatever reason, Python has this... Every man... Yeah, it's got a reputation that like, you know, it's 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 okay and you can just slap shit together and it's fine. It doesn't really matter and it's okay because it's just code and it does what it's supposed to do. And for some reason in the Haskell community, we have this feeling where it's like, it's the correct code. And like, you have to be super smart PhD person in order to, to write it. And I find this in myself. I, I've been writing Haskell for nearly 10 years now. And I still don't feel like I know anything or I'm good enough. Well, I, you write awesome stuff. I have used your stuff. 
I have read your books. I guess I feel like that's good enough, right? You're giving value to me. Yeah, I, I guess it's not really about me, though, so much as I, it feels like there's something in this community that maybe it's just how many smart people there are around. It's easy to compare ourselves to others because we don't we don't know like what's going on inside of them. All we know is what's going inside of us. And so maybe everybody feels the same way that like the community standard is above where they are, but they push through anyway. I guess my, my question is, do you feel like this is the case? And if so, is there something we could do about it? I do feel like that is the case. A lot of people would show up on the Haskell IRC channel and say, I'm angry at Haskell because it requires a PhD to write. And I would tell them, I've never had a college course in computers or math, and I'm able to write Haskell. What is your problem? And then they would kind of like shut up and write Haskell, or they would leave. Either one's fine. And, um, and, but I, and I still do, while I think there was more of, of like, I, there was, there used to be more of people using Haskell as a stick to beat other people with like, I'm smarter than you. And I think that is a terrible thing. I don't ever want to see that because like the point is I've got cool toys. Mine are shiny. Yours are shiny too. Let's trade toys. Uh, people would, would show up on the Haskell IRC channel and say like, um, Haskell is useless. You know, like there's no point in it. Uh, it's not production level. It's never going to be any good for anything. And I would say, okay, well, Tell me what your favorite language is. I'll, uh, like clearly, the one I want to write, write right now is Haskell, and you, you and I are going to agree on a very small command line utility. I'm going to write it in your favorite language, and you're going to write it in Haskell. <laughs> some people would, you know, a few people like would bite into it, and some people would just bounce. They were like, ah, it's way too much commitment for me. I just was just here to be angry, and but other people would actually, you know, jump in and try it out, and and they would come away with a much better idea of what Haskell was really about. I, I feel like that part of this is there's, there's this whole knowledge of Haskell that is passed on to people who have never used it by people who have never used it. And so that's the mythos that you really have to fight against. Yeah, I think you really nailed it there. It seems to exist in the, in the programming psyche more generally than even the functional programming community of like maybe this, this ivory tower that's sort of impenetrable and only for like galaxy brain types. Um, why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of people who don't feel good about themselves and they have to beat each other people with sticks, you know, they have to, and, and that is kind of sad because the reality is, is that instead of beating each other with sticks, we could like sit around in a circle and share the cool toys. That's my preference. I, I get a lot more out of building up the people around me who then build me back up in return. That's what I get the most out of. That's beautiful. My first blog post was about data types a la carte. And the only the only reason I published it was I was convinced I'd come up with like the strictly better solution than the one that was in the paper I'd read. As it happened, my idea was strictly worse. And I, I didn't know enough to even know how wrong I was. But without having gone through that period of being green, I don't think I would have ever published it. And I probably never would have really gotten involved in the Haskell community. And I'm wondering if there's some sense in which ignorance might be a good policy for getting things done. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. I, I strongly agree. And, and I think this goes back to the thing about steering. Like once you've gotten somewhere, you have the information. And if you don't know what you're doing, pick a direction, go in that direction. Uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody who was like, I don't know what to do with my life. And I was like, well, do you want to be a doctor? They were like, no. And I was like, all right, you've got more information. Great. <laughs> you know? And it's like, then, uh, you know, do they want to be an artist? Do they want to be a program? Like, what do you want to do? And and sometimes they're like, I don't know if I want to do that. And I was like, well, go try it. Maybe it'll be fun. You know, I like working on cars. I haven't done it in a while, but it's great fun. 
Now I've forgotten the question. What were we asking? The question was, um, is there a sense in which like ignorance is a good policy for getting things done? If, if you don't know enough to know how little you know, sort of it's easier to not have fear. Yes. And I think part of that is because the scope is different. And that is because if you haven't read every research paper, does that mean you shouldn't start? No. What you do is you, you start on the things that you want to learn. Um, like, I feel like the scope should be pulled down almost to, to me and my little community. Like the people that I, that I know around me, I can ask them for help. And then that is the, that is the scope. And so if the people in your community, if you can learn something that helps them, then you're now, now you know enough. I feel like there's there's never a case where you don't know enough. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess that goes back to my my earlier comment, which is the at least perception that the community is just full of all these brilliant people, and because of that, maybe maybe the implication internally is that you don't have something to share because how could I teach something to these brilliant people? Well, you are a member of many many communities, and so when you talk about the community. You're, you're sort of like trying to find people who are, who are who know more. And there will always be people who know more about stuff. And uh, there will always be people who know less about stuff. I feel like everybody has something great that, 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 that you can learn from them. And, ev- and you have something that everybody can learn from you. And so uh, what about the community of people who live in your neighborhood? They, they, maybe you can teach them how to reboot their computer. And that's something great for them. And uh, I feel like it's easy to find limitations but like there's so much, so many choices you can make to improve things and to do something better and to do good things. That's beautiful, thank you. To go back to permission a little bit, it sounds like your mental model is that you give yourself permission. And I, I, that really resonates. But have you ever had any circumstances in which you tried to give yourself permission, but it didn't work because in a, in a more sort of traditional sense, you didn't have permission to do it? Like there are some gatekeepers or something. Oh yeah. Lots of times. And there's a couple of, uh, I guess I feel like there's a couple of approaches to that. And that is that um, it has been my experience that rules have been created because something happened. Mm-hmm. And they don't want that thing to happen again. Right. And uh, I think it is usually safe to generalize the idea that a rule was also created because some particular person did something. And you didn't want them in your community anymore because they were, in some way or another, toxic and bad for the community. And so a lot of, a lot of times that thing is honestly fine to do. And the reason that it, that it was made a rule was to get rid of someone. And so a lot of times you can talk to the people who made the rule or the people who decided about the rule. And they understand the spirit of it. And you can say, I want to do this thing that is explicitly against the rules. And here is my reasoning for why this is a good thing anyway. And then they will almost always say, that's fine. There is another case where you are instead talking to someone who is not a decision maker, a policy maker, and their task and their role and their job is to enforce the rules without understanding why they are like that. And, and often those people, that is the right thing for them to do. But in some cases, you can use them to get access to a, a person who makes the real rules and who makes the decisions, and sometimes you can't. And those, last, in that last case, well, you're kind of stuck. you got to find a do something else. In cases like that, is it? do you think it's worth sort of skirting the rules? Or is it better to just sort of uh, hang your hat up and try something else somewhere else? I, I think it depends on what your goal is. Like, uh, I will honestly say that rules, I consider them to be at best a suggestion. 
and um, I and so I try to understand what is behind. You you probably heard of Chesterton's fence before, which is if there's a fence going across a road, try to understand why the fence is there before you remove it. And and I feel like there are plenty of times when I follow a rule that I don't understand because I don't know why it's there. What terrible things might happen to me? And the more I can understand about the rule, the more I and and I feel like this is also the process of learning, right? Like I can. When I was first learning Haskell, I just wrote this code that other people told me to write because I didn't know. And then at some point, I could modify the code to get better. And I feel like rules and rule systems and it's the same thing, right? Once you really understand what's going on, and if and in general, when you're stuck with these people who only know how to enforce the rules but don't know how understand the rules, there are many cases where you can find a way around them uh, because you can say there is a different route that might be easier um, to still reach my goal. Sometimes you're just stuck. That's happened to me a couple of times. But uh, sometimes you can come back the next day and a different person will be there and then it's fine. To, to pop the stack a little bit, I was I was curious about some of the things you've tried and failed. Um, and I heard there was something about Haskell the Musical. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, <laughs> one of, yeah, that was one of, one of the things that, al- that also was not... Uh, everything that happened probably for the best and that was like uh, I think that uh, I was working on the lyrics and some other guy was working on the arrangements and the other stuff and uh, I think we only like really worked on it for a few weeks but uh, really nobody else wanted to work on that which was kind of sad because I think it could have been super fun and silly and weird but like it just never became a thing but it uh, it did in fact get started okay but how do you turn Haskell into a musical I think it's super easy. Just figure out what rhymes with Simon Peyton Jones. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Where do you get all the energy to do all the things that you do? It, it feels exhausting to be to be building communities and starting newspapers and conferences and building Lambda bots. Where do you get this energy? I think I am permanently uh, impatient and restless and kind of unsatisfied. And uh, that can be used as a great fuel to do awesome stuff. Like I, I know one of the things is that I've done some things that hit Hacker News front page and man, I felt so cool, but I only felt cool for about a week. And at the end of the week, it totally is gone. And I'm like, well, all right, that's done. Uh, and I guess that's, that's it. It's kind of like, maybe it's the fact that I found out that I can feel cool about myself for at least a week. Um, and if I really like work hard, I can get that like once a month or so. So yeah, that's maybe is my high doing something that's awesome that I think is awesome because it's not always necessarily about other people. It's more about me. There's also sort of an issue of like, where do you actually find the time? Uh, I feel like so much of us spend so much of our time on maybe not particularly fruitful pursuits, whether that be, you know, scrolling on Twitter or um, watching Netflix or something. Have you sort of ruthlessly trimmed those things out of your life or are you not sleeping or like where where's your time coming from well i i've got a i've got an interesting story about that so the same time that i i wrote one of the first arrow tutorials for haskell um and it took a lot of hard work and a lot of time for me to try to put all the pieces together and i put the same amount of work into playing counter-strike believe it or not and i was in sweden and the world champions were uh, based out of stockholm so i was playing against them and i was honestly really really good at counter-strike because i wasn't good enough to get on like the world champions team but uh i was really good and um i like i I played against the same guys pretty often and one of the things 
that happened was that I got on the server after I'd been away for a couple of weeks and nobody remembered me. And I think it was four or five years after I wrote the Arrow tutorial that people were still sending me emails and saying that how thankful they were. And so it came up to just straight up, what's the payoff, you know? Like when I when I build uh, when I build some code that teaches people something that pays off for for maybe it's only fifty people but it pays off you know for years and when I play Counter Strike it's like cotton candy it's instantly the pleasure the payoff it's gone and honestly it's kind of the same thing for Netflix and, and a bunch of other stuff it's it just doesn't pay off I haven't done something awesome so is is it that you you don't even feel like attracted to to sort of these mindless ways of spending time is just um, or is it a thing you're actively fighting against? Oh, yes. I, I love, honestly, gosh, I, I like uh, every once in a while I fall down the hole of Team Fortress 2, which I freaking love. You know, like uh, I, I will tell you that the what is it? The um, the evil planning of an old person is honestly much more effective than the, the twitch reflexes of like a 12 year old. Um, but the thing is that, yeah, it's an active fight. Um, it's always something that I have to resist because the kind of the easy, quick rush of you know shooting a 12 year old and team fortress is it's easy but it doesn't pay off like what have i got you know <laughs> from the end of that i have nothing but when i wrote some code that other people can can use can benefit from can learn from then i have something that is that keeps paying off to, to change topics a little bit i'm wondering what attracts you to a project why have you invested so much into haskell and not some other community there's a lot of things i've kind of gotten into and it was okay and it was um i tried to get into pearl like a long ago and far away. I really tried hard and uh, they kick banned me from the channel. So I decided I would never learn Pearl. And, uh, and you know what? I think that paid off pretty well because Pearl has kind of fallen by the wayside. And, and I mean, I think part of it, like community is self-reinforcing. And so like the fact that I, I, I built a lot of community and a lot of people I now have friendships with, that's definitely kind of like kept me as part of it. Um, I think also though that I think there are a lot of better ways to program in Haskell. And like, honestly, like 10 years ago, JavaScript was not a functional programming language, right? I feel like a lot of these pieces have, have spread throughout the world. And, you know, maybe Haskell will go mainstream and I'll go look for the next thing to try to drag into the mainstream. So, so is the attraction, or at least was the original attraction just that it was better programming? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the original goal. You're a big role model in community. I'm wondering if, if you have any role models. Who are yours? I kind of don't have role models. And this is, <clears throat> I think that's that's because, how do, how do I say this? There's always this balance between separating the person who produced a thing from the thing itself. And I, I, I guess I, I like cool things that people have built, but I'm also aware that we are all very, very imperfect humans. Like, gosh, I've done a bunch of stuff that I wish I hadn't done. I've made all kinds of mistakes all over the place. And... So I guess I, I hope that other people will also separate the imperfect me from the cool stuff I've done. So I have like specific instances. Gosh, the Sandy McGuire guy wrote a cool book and I want to write a book one day, you know, and showing me here, Shay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's um, I mean, there's people like Simon Peyton Jones who've done so many awesome things like it, it, sure the Haskell community is great, but look at the other stuff he's done. Golly. And that. But even then, it's the things like we're all imperfect. Uh, we all make mistakes. Um, we also get to change directions. We get to be better this year than we were last year. Yeah, I, I wonder if maybe role model is the wrong term, but is there any um, 
Is there anyone you look at and say like, oh, I wish I had this skill that they seem to be really good at, or maybe I would like to conduct myself more like that person. And it doesn't have to be in all aspects of life, but maybe in certain domains. Um, I don't know. I wish I were as nice as Connell Elliott. He's just a wonderful human being. We talked a little bit offline about the importance of showing your work. And we've talked about a little bit of, in this conversation about the importance of, of putting work online and just being proud of things that you've done. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, what does showing your work mean to you? Uh, two steps for that I think are important. And that is, do cool stuff. Number two, brag about it. Because, like, you did a cool thing, you know? Like, uh, gosh, I, I will honestly, literally, seriously pat myself on the back when I did something cool. Because I'm like, Shay, you did a good job. You're awesome. Like I said, only lasts about a week. But um, I feel like that's, you know, it's training myself to... Uh, a lot of times other people aren't going to give me the positive reinforcement because they don't care. They're not interested. Uh, I built a weird keyboard based on a Markov chain. Nobody else cared. But it was super fun. You know, I was super happy. Built it in a week. Um, I built a thing that predicts how long my commands are going to take by, you know, calculating past runs. I was super thrilled with that. I still work on it. Do cool stuff. Brag about it. No one else is going to. Maybe it's not even like cool things necessarily so much as fun things. Do you think that's, that's fair to say? Yeah. I'm not sure what the difference is. Yeah. I, I, I guess when I think about cool, I think about, you know, publishing a paper or something versus like fun is hacking on this weird problem I just thought about. Well, I, I guess. I mean, I like writing papers, too, and I like hacking on code. So I guess, um, and you know, maybe the maybe the difference is, is that the accomplishment, the, the end point of it is not so as important to me as the process, the, the you know, the doing of the thing. Maybe that's it. I'm not sure. I like that. That, that really resonates with me. Uh, I've got one last question for you, and this is um, becoming a bit of a staple of the podcast, which is what advice would you give to someone who, who runs in our circles? I would say uh, find the good people and hang on to them and try to be a good friend. You never know what someone else is going through. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on that, of just finding good people and keeping them around? Uh, well, if you ever get a chance to be friends with Connell Elliott, he's one of the most like warm, friendly human beings. I mean, but it's like, it's like find the things that... Uh, there's a lot of people who will contribute positively to your life and you contribute positively to theirs as well. Uh, that's, that's something that is, you want to hang on to that, you know, like, and stay in touch with those people. Like I move all over the place. I, I tend to move like at least once a year, but I try to maintain contact with the, the good people that I've met. Um, and those are people in Haskell and all kinds of other places, you know? Um, yeah. Stay with the good people. Don't let go of them. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shay. Really appreciate having you on. Yeah. When do I get to interview you? If you want to? Sure. What about next episode? All right. Sounds great. <laughs>